For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. After teaching the Ephesians about the incredible spiritual wealth that is theirs as the people of God, Paul offers a beautiful prayer that all God's people might be able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to comprehend and experience God's great love. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Knowing Christ's Love. All righty. Let's get started. We got to pick up where we left off there in the middle of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's let us know about some really great truths, and now he's going to offer a prayer that we could grasp those truths. And that's the essence of where we're headed. Um, in the meantime, let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we like to pause and, and ask the Holy Spirit who's with us here assembled together with your people, that you would focus our hearts and corral our thoughts and help us be free of distractions that would um, not enable us to hear your word and to put it into practice. Lord, we just want to hear your voice. Lord, correct us, comfort us, lead us, and, and, and touch our hearts in a miraculous way. And I know the truth here, Lord. If we catch the truth about how much God loves us, uh, it could be a game changer. So we just pray that you would uh, bless us toward that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A sad story happened last March. Maybe you caught it out of Rosemead down there in Los Angeles. Uh, turned out that no one came forward to collect uh, the lottery prize, and the lottery prize was exactly $1,098,624. So when the clock ticked down and no ticket was presented by anyone, the money got transferred to the California public schools. Good thing. Yeah, that's good, right? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> the story goes on to say, uh, California lottery officials released the surveillance uh, video of the man who bought the winning ticket. The computer tells you when that number was issued and from where, and they happen to have a camera. And so they broadcast that on local television news, and um, people recognized him. In fact, actually, it was his boss who gave him a call and said, dude, you won the lottery. Well, you sort of won the lottery. And sadly, it was this man who purchased the ticket, uh, but then he misplaced it. That was a very heartfelt groan from the audience. <laughs> and let me let, get ready to groan again. Uh, he was just struggling to make ends meet, working hard as a mechanic, and they just had a, a five-month-old baby. Yeah, I know. Too bad. He could have used $1,098,624. They left the cents out, probably, to spare him. Yeah. The, the rules go like this. Produ produce the actual uh, ticket 
within the allotted amount of days or forfeit the prize. The video is worthless. It just, no ticket, no money, period. Hire all the lawyers you want. Uh, it's not going to change. Now, even though I don't play the lottery and I don't uh, suggest or recommend that Christians gamble because um, it's poor stewardship, uh, among other things, but allow me to make an illustration. So, yeah, he was fortunate. I mean, lightning kind of struck there. He purchased the ticket. Listen, it was in his possession. It was his, but he just wasn't able to access the prize and how sad, because he's kind of a winner and kind of not. And some believers are like that. So this morning, Paul breathes a quick prayer, closing half of Ephesians chapter 3, um, that is, readers would not only realize that they hit the jackpot in Christ, they're ticket holders, and they are, and we are, but that we would be able to grasp what's happened to us and put it into practice and enjoy the winnings of knowing Christ as our Lord and experiencing all the benefits of having a living God who dwells in our hearts by the powerful Holy Spirit. This is the essence of Paul's prayer. Verse, one, verse 14. For this reason, all that I've just said, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Wow, that's a beautiful prayer. And so that is the entirety of the text that we're going to re reflect upon and, uh, and then split it up for our consideration, as we always do. Uh, but funny how the Old Testament and New Testament studies that we do Wednesday night, verse by verse through the Old Testament, uh, last time was a prayer, uh, Ezra's prayer, uh, chapter 9, right? And so, so this Sunday, now it is um, turn to, time to look at the Apostle Paul's prayer. Now, Ezra prayed the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. And so I was very thankful to see that this prayer was brief, but very profound. And so it's more uh, applicable for Sunday morning. In fact, it, it's like a river, this prayer, that kind of gets bigger in three ways here. There are three kind of dynamics to the prayer. And so that'll serve as our talking points this morning for all you note takers. So first of all, in this request, he's asking, number one, that they be empowered by the Spirit of God, strengthened 
by God's power. And secondly, he's saying so that they can comprehend and live in Christ's love. And then therefore, number three, uh, he says that we would be filled with, as Paul puts it, the fullness of the full measure of God. And so that's going to be an intriguing verse to pick apart. Now, I think this is one of the most invaluable portions of Scripture that we have in the Bible. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's inspiring this man of God to pray a prayer for what we need to be. So at the end of the day, when you want to ask yourself, am I doing good? Am I going to get there? And God's going to say, hey, wow, what a healthy, dynamic, effective, faithful Christian you've been or not. What's your measure? Well, this prayer, this prayer is your measure because he's praying that we be everything God has intended us to be. So if you are these things, and none of us will ever get fully there until we see him face to face and we're changed, but that's the goal. That's the target. So this is the standard bearer for all Christian living is what God has put on Paul's heart to pray, that it comes to pass that you be this kind of Christian Because in God's estimation, this kind of Christian is the successful, effective, healthy, blessed kind of Christian. And so it's invaluable to take a look at this prayer. I like what uh, uh, Hanley Mole is his name. Bible scholar, early 1900s, Anglican evangelical scholar. Here's what he said about this verse, this prayer. He said, who has not read and reread the closing verses of the third chapter of Ephesians with the feeling of one permitted to look through the parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. So it's time for us to peek through those curtains and take a look at uh, what God thinks that we ought to be about as people who belong to him and have won that great uh, privilege. So let's pull apart uh, the prayer and start with uh, verses here, the opening verses. Strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. So Paul first introduces a little bit. He introduces the prayer here uh, as the request takes shape. Now, uh, for this reason, uh, there are important words. So for this reason gives context to the prayer. He's saying, what prompted this prayer is what I just said. So if you don't know what he just said, you're missing out. So what was he just talking about? Well, chapters one and two and the beginning of three is all about reconciling work that Jesus did on the cross to bring down that wall that separated us from God and heaven and life because that's where we find life is in God. But there was a wall up and Christ's death, of course, brought that wall down. Perhaps the worst, uh, saddest scripture in the Bible, Isaiah 59, verse 2. He says, your iniquities have separated you from God, your sins from his face. And it's account of those sins. He does not hear you. Wow. Well, Christ came, God the Son. And he became that sin. And in his own body, he was the sponge for God's wrath for all mankind. He died for us and the sins of the world, First John tells us. And the whole world's sins were laid upon his. Jesus' last breath in the 
in, uh, on the cross, the temple curtain that represented that wall of separation was torn from top to the bottom, signifying who was doing the tearing. God said, through, the, through Christ's bearing of our sins. If sins are gone, the wall's gone. And he says, come on in to believers who have been bought and paid for by that blood. And furthermore, which will give you context for what makes sense of sort of a random out there verse from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, is is that not only did the wall that divided us from God come down, the walls that divide humanity into a gabillion nationalities and races and socioeconomic things, all those walls that, that create hostility, those have come down. And through Christ, he has made one family. So since he's been talking about that, listen, when you come to Christ, it doesn't matter what your last name used to be or who you used to be or where you used to be. When you come through the cross, you are blood washed and you become a humble servant of God and a brother and sister in the Lord to other people. And so he's saying right away, that's why he, that random thought makes sense now, because he's saying, for this reason, that God has reconciled the world to himself and us to one another to create in Christ a new society, a kingdom, a nation. I don't know what you call the church. The church in Greek is called ecclesia, which means the called out ones. He's made a society, a a mystery. No one in the Old Testament saw it coming. The called out ones were going to be this invisible, called out people, society, where there are no walls that that you can take somebody so different, an apostle Paul, and put him next to somebody, uh, a Gentile who is not even religious. You can put them together, and there would be peace and joy and harmony. That's the thing. It was a mystery. And last week we found out not even the angels knew that God was going to work in that way. The great mystery is the church of Jesus Christ, the invisible uh, connection of all born-again believers on the earth. And he says, if you have a name at all, it's because God put his stamp, his name upon you. And that's the name that comes together. For he's about to go on with this thought. I mean, this is the theme of the letter. He's going to go on to say, there's one corporate body, one true spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, who believe, you see. And so we share the same last name. Well, you know, I I had a friend in Bible college. We were best friends. And his last name was a very strong German name. My last name, it may sound German, but it's Jewish. And so he made the comment once we were both going, we're best friends. We're going out to evangelize. We were on the street ministry team. We were just enjoying each other's company and just high-fiving each other and praying together. And he said to me, wow, my ancestors were killing your ancestors. And look what God has done. With a German like me and a Jew like you, and now we're in Christ. 
where the walls go down. There is no wall, he says, between Jew and non-Jew or slave or, or, or free man. He says, all of that stuff, you come through the cross, man, and it levels you because the cross buys you whether you're a rich, beautiful celebrity or you're, you're poor and nobody knows you. If you're a morally inclined person or if you're a prostitute, sorry, harsh language, but uh, it costs the same for everybody. That's why it's not about good works, not about being a good person. It's about coming to faith in Christ who saves dead people and raises us up through faith. Amen? Amen. And so, yeah, that's what he's saying here. He's saying that I now, of course, there's a prayer coming. Why? After all of that? Do you know how much of a miraculous touch of God you need in your heart to realize that those walls are down? We know in our heads. We sit here this morning. The walls are down. Nobody's more important than anybody else here. Everybody costs the same, right? And, and as I said last week, you have a doctor sitting next to people in rehab. You have uh, former criminals sitting next to the cop over there. And we had a couple cops here. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing thing, right? And so that's the point is, is that you're going to need God's power strengthening you in your heart to live that way. Oh, we know it here. But then, you know, we forget and we start throwing up the walls and we have prejudices and biases. And, you know, the context for this passage was, I'm going to pray for you because you need the power of God in your heart to strengthen you in the, on the inside because the Jews and the, the, the Gentiles were coming together as one. So Paul the Apostle was sitting down having a BLT with some Trophimus from Ephesians. Uh, the Jews don't eat bacon. Right. <laughs> B-L-T-B stands for bacon. Anyway. It took the power of God to help that the church that was Jewish in the beginning struggled so hard culturally. How do we assimilate with the people we've been at odds and an enmity with for for a thousand years or so? Oh, you'll need to be strengthened. Our prayer, his prayer, you'll be strengthened by God's spirit in your inner heart for that kind of thing to happen. And of course, Jesus was so big on power, power to live the Christian life. How are we supposed to? Yes, it's important for harmony and peace where people have a lot of differences, but it's also necessary to live the Christian life as I don't know about you, but it's really hard uh, without the enabling power of God. I mean, seriously, start to think about it. Without God's power and strength, you know, we're toast. How else are you going to forgive and forget people? You know, or forget what was done anyway, you know? Or to stop thinking of ourselves as better than everybody else or to quit throwing up walls. Come on. How are we going to love enemies? How are you supposed to love your enemy? Let's just be honest here. We hate our enemies, right? How am I supposed to love our We have trouble loving the ones we love, let alone we have to love the ones we don't like very much and who hurt us. Come on. That you may be strengthened by God's spirit, not yours, not you're working up something that you passively put yourself in a posture where God can do the strengthening. 
Not you manning up to do this thing because you don't have the power or the ability or the inclination uh, to be quite honest with you. It goes on. How are you going to turn the other cheek? How, how do you do that? How do you go the extra mile? How do you die to your self-centeredness? How do you always put others first? The command to put others first isn't like a quarterly event, all right? He's not, a, <laughs> he's not asking you. I, I would like, you know, every quarter for you to have other-centered day. You know, he, he's saying... This is a, a lifestyle to live. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only words that build up people. Do you think he means that? Like, like when you get around to it, when it's convenient, you know, when you can. I mean, if they're not bothering you, but if they are bothering you, then you can. No. <laughs> Keep a tight rein on your tongue or your religion is worthless. How am I supposed to do that? My prayer that by God's spirit, he would give you dunamis in the Greek. It's the word for dynamite. That he would give you the dynamite of God inside. That you cash in on that and cooperate with that power. And by his strength, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret of what he's saying here. You guys need to be strengthened. Where in the inner man. Oh, check that out. In the inner heart. That's what he's saying. In the secret place from which life springs. That's why Proverbs chapter four says, guard your heart above all things because it's the wellspring of life. Your whole life comes out of it. So you need to guard it. And he says, I pray that God give you strength in that place, power, that there be just pulsating dynamite in there because you're going to have to have that to be who God made you to be. And the very thing that, a little encouraging thought, if he's praying it for you, you can be it. We don't pray prayers that God can't answer, right? And so we should and must aspire to get to that place. And so it's the inner. Here's what Warren Wiersbe said. I love him about this verse. He said, too many of our prayers focus on the outward, the physical and the material needs and fail to lay hold of the deeper inner needs of the heart. It would do us so good to use these prison prayers. He's in prison and this prayer comes from there as our own prayers and ask God to help us in our inner person. That is where the greatest needs are. Oh, and if we neglect the inside because everybody can see out here. If we only look the way we were acting on the inside, well, that's a scary thought, right? <laughs> but it would help us. It would help us. You know, one pastor said, it's random thought. Surprise, but it's coming into my mind. And so he said, uh, <laughs> uh, Pastor Scarfords, he said, um, he said, what if everybody who was a non-giver, they never gave a dime, right? Had to have a red bulb on their nose. You know, their nose turned red completely, right? And so they just never gave at all to the church, not a penny. Right? And you just come to church and you'd have a big red ball on your nose. You'd be a giver. 
you'd suddenly be a giver, or maybe not in the right sense of being a giver, right? Because right. the point is, you know what? We, can, we get away with murder on the inside, and we think we don't have to deal with it. But then the inner grows and grows and grows. It starts to spill out places, and then we start to take notice. And so he says, on the inside, where it counts. And, and I just want you to see this beautiful verse 17. The reason I'm praying that you be strengthened with God's dynamite by him in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Excuse me? Is there a prerequisite for Christ to come into my life? No, there isn't. So we have to understand what that means because we come unqualified. The only way to qualify to get saved is that you know you're unqualified and offer nothing but sins. You come to Christ by faith, period, done. And Christ dwells in you technically. Now here's what this word means. I, lo I love as one Charles Hodges put it this way, and he explains it beautifully. He says, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. Is a thing of degrees. It means that the Lord can dwell in us weakly. There's a weaker presence of him. He's in there, you're saved, right? Or there's a full-blown, pulsating, powerful, healthy presence of God. And that's the choice of this word, dwell, further confirms this is the meaning. The choice of the word. There are two Greek similar words for to dwell. We already heard the weaker one used, which is not here. The weaker one is used in chapter 2 and verse 19, and it's to dwell as a stranger uh, somewhere uh, uncomfortably in an, in, to inhabit a place that's not their own, really. They're a stranger in the place. So they dwell there, but they're not really at home. That's the sense. That's not the word here. The word here is the stronger word. And the stronger word means to settle down comfortably, to live there. Now, it's got a sense of permanence. It has a sense of comfort. It has a sense of right, that there's a right for him to be there as the owner. So the picture, to make it easier, is he's saying, when God's power is present in the Christian's heart and life, Christ truly, fully can dwell there and do his work. Now, uh, the, the, the little uh, comparison would be the owner uh, who comfortably lives in his own home and a stranger who's renting a room. That's the idea of the verses. And he's saying, uh, if God's power is in you, you're cooperating with that power, and, and God is doing a great thing on the inside, even though nobody can see it, but we can, that Christ truly dwells. Just, I mean, he's free to walk into any room. I mean, you're the roommate in there, right? So if Christ is dwelling, he wants to, he goes to open a door, and you're like, whoa, uh, no, 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 not that side of the house. You... Jesus, you live over here. And now I, to help you, Jesus, I've taken a yellow cord, and I'm going to just stretch it around the places where you're welcome. All right? So that door there, oh, oh those drawers, that drawer, no, 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 no. That top drawer's mine. You get the bottom drawers. All right. See, 
That's not dwelling. That's not biblically dwelling. Yeah, are you saved? You, if he's in, if he's on board, you're going to arrive at the shores because he's on board, and it's a free gift. You may crash and burn on the runways of heaven, and they'll dust you off and say, uh, we're glad you're here, but what a wreck you were. First <laughs> Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, show you that you can be fully saved and fully unrewarded for your lack of faithfulness. That makes such sense. That makes such sense. And the way God will judge that is not against you and me and you and him. And yeah, He judges you against you because he knows the race he called you to and your faithfulness and your gifts and your strength and what you've been through. He can factor all that in and he's going to say, for you, you are faithful. You see, well done, good and faithful servant. And so... That's the thing, is that Christ can... What kind of roommate are you? Just as we pause here, we're going now. But what kind of roommate are you? How many of you have had a really difficult roommate in your life? If you're living with them, don't raise your hand if they go here. (laughs) How many of you had the roommate not from heaven, shall we say? Come on. Leaving dirty dishes in the sink? Playing your music so loud and, you know, going to bed at 7.30 and then wanting the whole house to be quiet because you're in bed, you know. Are you that kind of roommate to Christ? Think about that. You want to be a good roommate. Okay, we're moving on. He says, and that's not all. I'm also praying that you be rooted and established in love that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And so he's moved on now. Like God would give you power in your inner heart, all that dynamite, uh, so that you can live a life of love, which is the only thing the Apostle Paul, Holy Spirit, through Paul, says matters. Love Without love, he says, listen to this, you had it at your wedding, you should know it by heart. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, right? How many of you did have it at your wedding? Yeah, I told you. (laughs) He said, no matter what accomplishment on earth you could talk about, if you have not love, it reduces that thing to zero. He said, "If um, if I don't have love, I'm a big zero. Even if you fill in the blank, even if, yeah, even if, he says, and then he describes what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it's not self-seeking, it's not proud, it's not boastful, uh, it doesn't delight in evil, the list goes on. When I am rude, I'm diminishing the value of my Christian life in God's sight. So he's going to, I'm going to think, well, I did this, this, and this, and this. And he said, you were also nasty. So <laughs> since, <laughs> since you were nasty, I thank you for this part, but I'll just want you to know it didn't really have a lot of meaning 
because you were rude or insensitive. You know, look what I did. I did this and this and this. Look at how you treat your wife. That's why I don't, I'm not even listening to your prayers. First uh, Peter chapter 3. Your prayers are hindered by your behavior to others. Especially in this case, your wife. And so love's important. If you're not being loving in a relationship, the Lord says, could you not put anything in your tithe box? I, I don't want your offering. Just He says, come to church if, if you're reminded that you have really hurt somebody's feelings and they have ought against you. Could you not put anything in the offering? Because it's meaningless. Go and get right with that person as far as it depends on you. I mean, it takes two to tangle. Do your part. Hey, I'm sorry. I offended you. I take full responsibility. I hope you forgive me. And then come and put your gift in. It's acceptable. Love is so important, man. It's tied. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, number two is just as important. And it's hinged to number one, that we treat others the same way we want to be treated or love them with the same kind of love and intensity we have uh, for ourselves. And so that's the, that's the understanding of, boy, it's important what he's saying. So he uses two metaphors in your text, agricultural and one from the world of architecture, uh, to say uh, the, to describe the preeminence of love in the Christian's life. In other words, it's the soil from which a well-rooted tree grows, love. So your life needs to be growing every day in the soil of love, love for God and love for others. And he says, it's like a foundation. You live in security and your life is stable because it's set like a well-founded house or building. That's where it comes from. And then he goes on to tell you how that's possible. How do you get that kind of godly love down deep? How does that happen? By comprehending Jesus' love for you. Because when it connects to your, sorry, and my wretched soul, the love of the Most High God and what he did to prove that, and that you feel I could be in a Christless eternity and deserved it. Instead, he plucked me out, put his love on my life, gave me gifts and abilities and blessed me, and he's taken me guaranteed all the way to sit me on a throne in heaven. When that gets a hold of you, you come undone. You just come undone, like the woman who went into the Pharisee's home. Jesus is reclining. And she falls apart. She busts in there. You know, she was a sinful woman, but God touched her. She busts into the, to the banquet, and the Pharisee, oh, the religious man, he, you know, sorry if you're British. I always do that. <laughs> uh, I go to my British voice for Pharisees, but oh, I'm sorry. And he says, oh, if, if, if you only knew in his mind what kind of woman she is. And she's weeping and wetting. Her tears are falling on his feet. And she's like, oh, she's out of her mind. And she's taking in her hair and drying his feet, soaked with her tears, with her hair. And he says, Simon, I got a question for you. Two guys owed somebody a lot of money. Well, 
One guy owed, you know, $5,000. One guy owed him uh, five bucks. But neither of them could repay. So he canceled both of them. Who do you think loved him more? And he says, and he knows, oh, I love this. He goes, I suppose. That means I know the answer, and I'm not happy about this. <laughs> I suppose the one for whom the, the larger debt was paid. He says, yeah, that's right. You know, when I came in here, Simon, Mr. Pharisee, I didn't get it. There was a, where was the water for my feet? But the second I got here, when she got here, oh, she washed my dirty feet with her tears and then dried them with her hair. I didn't get a kiss, even the Middle Eastern air kiss on either side. From you, you're just like, yeah, go sit over there. You know? She came in. She's still kissing my feet right now as I'm telling the story. She's kissing my feet. And I just want to tell you the truth. She's doing that because she gets it. She knows what she's been forgiven. She's got the love of Christ got a hold of her. She's grasped it. And now you see a response, a living response of worship and giving. And she doesn't care who's in the room looking at her. going, you're a crazy lady, you know? Pull yourself together. She could care less because her Savior, her God, who saved her from an immoral death in life, not to mention a Christless eternity. That's the only way. He says, you're going to have to comprehend it personally. And everything you say and do ought to be a response to the love of Christ shown to you. Everything. Or it's going to get old and boring and ugly. <laughs> You've got to be responding to the love. And he says, let me give you four analogies if you want to think about God's love in four different ways. He says, I'm praying that you would know and grasp. And the word for grasp is a delightful word. It's to violently seize. <laughs> so he wants you to get this, <laughs> all right? He says, how uh, wide? How wide is the love of Christ? He's saying, you know, it's wide. It'll take a radical Islamic terrorist who comes to faith and sit them next to a Swedish granny in Switzerland, or where Sweden. Oh, yeah, she lives in Switzerland, but she's Swedish. <laughs> you didn't know that. Uh, she's knitting booties, but she's ignored God all her life. Yeah, you know, it, it's for the, the, the old and the young, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the purple and the green, and uh, the good and the bad. That's wide. It's really wide. How long the love of Christ well, from everlasting to everlasting, uh, before the foundation of the world, he predestined you in love. So he was loving you before the earth was spinning. That's a long time, and he will never stop. You will never exhaust the unfailing love of Christ, and nothing will ever separate you from it. High depth, angels, demons, things present, things to come. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. It goes on and on and on. And then I love it. He adds and it says, and anything else in all creation, nothing can separate. It's a long, it's a long love. And you know what? We see his wounds 
glorified in heaven. Why? So we know I'm paid for. And every time you see the Lord and you see that, it won't be bad. It'll be, oh, love. I'm safe forever. It's a long love. How high is it? I want you to know the height of God's love. Well, how high is the distance between the gate of hell and the throne in heaven? Because he takes us dead in our sins, raises us up, into heavenly places and seats us with Christ. And Christ said, you will have a place on my throne, reigning and ruling with me. So I just want to know about the height of God's love that he would take a guy who's killing Christians, the apostle Paul, who was previously named Saul, and lift that wretched soul, put his spirit in his heart and raise him up to the highest heaven and sit him on a throne. That's high. That's a, that's a high love. And then what about the depth of Christ's love? Because God's love plunges with us into our deepest, darkest despair. When you wake up, sir, after 25 years of marriage, and out of nowhere, your wife says to you, you know what? I don't know that I love you anymore. I'm I'm, I love you, of course, but I'm not in love with you. And where did she get that from? The View? Or <laughs> Oprah? Her mentors, right? Because if she was listening to a sermon, she would hear that love isn't something you fall in and out of. For better, for worse. Okay, this is maybe the worst. But guess what? Hello? Can you say vow? You know, none of that. But when, when he has to tell his kids, mommy doesn't love daddy anymore. The love comes plunging down into that man's soul and says, there's going to be another day. There is hope. I will work in this. I am for you. What is the Psalm 139? When I make my bed in hell, your hand is there with me. He comes plunging down that well, that shaft, all the way to the bottom. When your world falls apart, your boss decides, you know what? We're downsizing. <laughs> and that means you. When your world falls apart, Noah, I mean, that love rescues us. It comes down and saves us. Noah, the Bible hero, he had a bad night. He drank too much. He got drunk. And then he forgot to put his jammies on. <laughs> and he's laying there, and the boys are watching. And he woke up, and he realized, oh, it's the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm ashamed. I can't even look at them. And God's love <laughs> down all the way, picks him up and says, I have a plan for you. Let's just take today and sort this all out. But my love didn't give up. And, and, and Noah goes on. But the list goes on. King David, after the hormones go out, and after he slept with that beautiful babe, and then brought forth uh, uh, the fruit of her womb, had to die. And the feeling of David knowing that my stupidity, my sin has caused this death of this baby. God's love plunges down and says, I'm going to do something good here. 
because you're turning and you're trusting my love. And David gets up and he writes a psalm, Psalm 51. Why? Because he knows the depth of the love of Christ. And so do we. That love, it'll go down all the way. You can't fall far from it. You can't. There's no bottom to his love. There is a bottom to how much a Christian can fall, but no bottom on his love. And let's remember that. And by the way, he says, and by the way, I want you to know, and the word means to experience by knowing, to know by experience, I should say, this love that surpasses knowledge. So he says, you know, we can't really grasp it. Perhaps that's what eternity is for, that we can uh, have the adventure of trying to figure out the inexhaustible grace of God's riches and mercy. But until then, he says, our human knowledge, we can, he can only do so much with limited finite beings when he's infinite and his love is, is infinite as well. It's like nailing jello to a wall, man. At first, you maybe, some of you, good at it, you know? You're like, you know, it's, if you freeze the jello first. <laughs> but, you know, sooner or later, you figure out this isn't going to work. And he says, hey, I know, but let's. Let's do the best that we can. And so he's saying by the power of God's spirit that he strengthens you in your inner heart so you can grasp and, know, grasp and know Jesus' love so that you can respond. You know, it, it, it's hard to say you're sorry or, or to eat dirt if you have to. But if you're doing it for Jesus who shed his blood for you and in that moment you connect my pain and my discipline in this moment is unto you, Jesus. I'm thanking and worshiping you. I can do that. Now, if you take that away, I, I won't do it because I don't want to do this because I don't, you know, you know how we are, right? Connect the more difficult, godly responses that you are required with worshiping and responding to his great love for you. And you'll be able to do it. Last little PS thing here. He says that all of this is going toward one line uh, and followed by the doxology there, um, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Well, I wrote down here, what in the world does that mean? Oh, <laughs> well, I found out, you know, but I kind of had a, a sense of it. It's sort of that idea of a fullness of dwelling, that the Holy Spirit is it. You know, full sail, vibrant, full, and no hiding places, nothing between you and the Savior, and everything's right, and you're nourishing, you're nurturing, you're reading the Bible, you're walking with God, nobody's perfect, but you're obeying, you're loving him, you're doing good deeds as he, as you respond to his love, and there's a fullness of God, of who you're supposed to be in him and him in you. That's, I believe, what's going on here. And he's saying, I've got a picture of it. I think a picture of a metaphor. Of if we were a sailing ship, this is the largest sailing vessel in the world. And you look at those sails. When those sails are full, and they catch the winds in the right way, and everything's lined up right. 
That vessel is a thing of beauty to behold. And it just skips along and just kind of cuts a path that's straight and a thing of beauty. And what he's saying is the Christian life needs to be just set sail fully. You, you know, the, the word ruach in Hebrew is spirit, wind or breath. That's what it means. In the New Testament, in the Greek, pneuma, where you get anything with the lungs, pneumonia, pneuma, they're wind, right? And so he's saying the wind, the breath of God would, would not be grieved or quenched by our uh, not cooperating, but, but that we're like in a three-legged race when, when you're in stride and, and everything's working right and you can really go well, but you both better be in stride or it's ugly, it's nasty. Have you ever seen them trying to, you know, they're tied together, but they can, what are you, you're trying to do your own thing. Feel, get with me, get with me. That's what he's saying to us. Get with me. Get in, keep in stride. In fact, that's a scripture. Keep in stride with the love of God. Keep in step. That's what it means. Don't lag behind and make them drag you along and don't get out in front. That's dangerous. <laughs> But just kind of take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. He says, hook up with me. My burdens are light. They're easy. You'll really enjoy it. Just don't stray that way, that way. Just stay close to me. And your vessel be clean. And just sailing along. So if the metaphor was fire, he's saying be ablaze. Well, he's not asking you to be the fire, thankfully. So don't leave depressed. He's asking you to... Maybe stoke the fire. He's the fire. If the metaphor is, you know, uh, a river, he's saying, let it be overflowing its banks. If it's the light, let it burn brightly. And no, you don't have to become uh, a pastor, an evangelist, uh, or somebody strange to be full of God. People who are full of God are at, make other people at ease. Uh, Non-Christians are at ease around people who are godly, not uncomfortable. Jesus was uh, at all of those uh, barbecues with tax collectors and, and prostitutes, and they loved him. He was invited to dances and, and uh, weddings. Why? Not because he made people uncomfortable. So, so the concept of being full, filled with God is just being walking with the Lord with no hindrances on board and letting the love of God just, just make you the kind of person uh, that he wants us to be. So there's this beautiful benediction. Love it. Most people just pull out 20 and don't see the context. Don't do that. This is awesome. He's just, he's just prayed this dynamic prayer uh, that the Holy Spirit would come in by his power into your inner heart and strengthen you that you be rooted and grounded in love as you respond to this comprehension of how high and wide and long and wide or the breadth of God's love so that the fullness of God would be there. And now he's going to say, here's how I know he can answer that prayer. Right there. That's what he's saying. Now, to him who can, and then there's five things here. Number one, He's able, and that word is to work, because he's the living God. He's not dead. There's not the force out there. There's not karma. There's a father. He's able 
because he's living. Number two, he says he's able to do what we ask because he's a God who hears your heart and your prayers and cares. Number three, he's able to do what we imagine or think because he can read our minds. He knows your thoughts and your unspoken dreams that you're too afraid to give voice to. He says he can hear that, know that, do that, and beyond. Number four, he's able to do all that we ask because he is the Lord. And as he said to Sarah, who laughed when he said, hey, you're going to have a baby. She says, oh, right, and laughed. And the Lord said, I am the Lord. Is anything too difficult for me? So that's what's going on here. He's able to do everything you ask. Why? But he's able to do, lastly, he's able to do immeasurably beyond because God has no limitations. So you're thinking, hey, you know, it's a big prayer. He says, you've got a big God. It's a prayer God wants to answer. Watch out for those. Because if you yield your heart, he will turn you into the man or woman of God, full sails, fire, dynamic power within, so that what? so that you can come under and serve him and be a blessing and live the blessed life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for the truths that are found in this prayer. Awesome. And now we know what you're expecting our lives should look like, and you want them to be like that, and we do too. But our flesh gets in the way, Lord, so help us be merciful, Lord. But we do know you're able, more than able, just as the text says, Lord, to accomplish what concerns us today. We just ask now uh, for your help as we reflect on these truths. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.